Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. We filed at the New Civil Liberties Alliance a, a new lawsuit uh, this last week, John, that I wanted to tell our listeners about. Uh, the The name of the lawsuit is Hogue et al. v. Newsom et al. And the, the New Civil Liberties Alliance represents uh, Dr. Tracy Hogue uh, and then Drs. Duracetti, Cariotti, Mazaluski, and Katibi. And these are five California physicians licensed by the Medical Board of California. And uh, four of the five treat patients on a regular basis. And they are concerned, John, about Assembly Bill AB 2098, which was signed into law on September 30th by Governor Newsom. And I have to tell you, this is this is such a frontal assault on the First Amendment and free speech rights that I'm shocked even California would pass something like this through democratic processes. And I'm not sure if that if that is more of an indictment on uh, the lack of understanding of free speech among elected officials in California, or if it's more of an indictment how far away we've gotten from the importance of free speech. I mean, uh, uh, the Berkeley free speech movement started in California, right? Yeah, I, I do, but tell them what it fans. Yeah, uh, well, okay. <laughs> Don't want to get too far down the road with my uh, <laughs> with my soapbox here before I before I tell you what it does, I guess. But uh, so this new this new law is uh, uh, is a the ban on doctors sharing COVID misinformation with their patients. And you might say, well, what's what's wrong with that, Mark? We don't want doctors spreading COVID misinformation. Well, no, we don't. But who gets to decide what the misinformation is? Aha, it's the state of California. And therein lies lies the problem. So if there's the state of California can go after a doctor if the doctor is spreading something that is not consistent with, quote unquote, contemporary scientific consensus. Well, There's a few different problems with this, but to start with, this is just clear viewpoint discrimination. If somebody has one view on masking, then that's going to be okay. If they have a different view on masking, that's not going to be okay. If they have a view on the legitimacy of of natural immunity, that's going to be okay. If they have the opposite view, that's not going to be okay. This is not how we do science in this country. Science needs to be a, a process of scientifically informed people and, and even other people really being able to engage in a conversation, being able to uh, use their best medical judgment based on the observations that, that they have in the clinical setting uh, as to what's working and what's not working uh, for their patients. And their patients expect their doctors to be honest with them and to be providing their best medical judgment, John. They don't expect 
the doctor to just be parroting some line from the government. That's what you might expect from a Soviet doctor, but not from an American doctor. And you're also supposed to treat the patient, not the population. So the problem here is, is that let's say a doctor says something about the vaccine because of this patient's particular problems and says, I don't think it's good for you, even though I believe in all the, uh, you know, vaccine things, but I think for this reason, you know, it, for you, I, I wouldn't prescribe I wouldn't, it. Now, yeah. Is that within the scientific consensus? Well, no one else has that patient. So th this is very dangerous because, because also the politicization of science. It really strikes me that what they want is everyone to follow whatever the CDC wants at that moment, and they will punish you otherwise. I think that uh, I think there is a risk that that's what they're that they're trying to do here. And the fact that it's very limited to COVID, I think, is uh, is telling. I mean, why 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 do we care so much about this one and not about other things? I mean, look, if a if a doctor is doing something crazy, like telling their patients to inject themselves with bleach or something like that, there's malpractice laws that deal with that right now. We don't need a new law to take care of of that kind of, uh, of reckless uh, behavior or instruction on the part of a medical professional. All this is doing is it's giving a weapon to the Medical Board of California, to the government of California, uh, to uh, threaten the licenses of physicians who aren't going along with the party line on and COVID. And I'll tell you another thing, Mark, what is the consensus on certain of these vaccines for uh, teenage males, for instance. Sure. I have seen a number of things in medical journals, and I'm not a doctor. Now, one of our lawyers, Greg Dolan, is Dr. Dolan, so that That's is right. good. We do but, have one on staff. But, uh, but yeah. But, is there a doctor in the house? Yes, on <laughs> Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. <laughs> no, wait. So, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, something like that. So in any of it, but, but the point is, that is a matter of dispute right now. But I bet you there are people who are going to say, well, the CDC recommends it for, for those populations, but European boards of health don't recommend it. And then, so it, it science from the, from uh, certainly uh, enlightenment times is a, is a worldwide community, right? So what is the consensus? Is it only California? I mean, it's very difficult to figure out. Right. Is it, is it just Sacramento doctors? Is it just California doctors? Is it all American doctors? Is it just doctors who treat COVID? Is it just epidemiologists? Is it just infectious disease experts? Is it just doctors uh, who are licensed in California? I mean, who who are the, the who's the relevant population who forms the consensus? And then how is any doctor supposed to know what the consensus is at any one point in time? Are there going to be regular polls done of this group of folks to determine what the consensus is? No, there aren't going to be and, such polls done. And I'll say, when you do a malpractice suit, there's what's called the standard of care. Did they fall above or below the standard of care? And you fight over that. But here, uh, there, there's one thing to say what the standard of care is. It's another thing to say, when you recommend this to a patient, um, whether or not it's good for them, it's, it becomes insoluble. And it also, it, it chills and stops the speech. And I think it's designed to do so. It this is. is kind of naked that way. That's right. It, it creates a severe chilling effect that is in direct violation of the First Amendment uh, as well. And then the piece we were just talking about, John, in terms of, of how do you even know what the scientific consensus is, that's part of the problem with this, with the vagueness of this statute. And we argue that it's void for vagueness uh, as well. So there's a First Amendment problem here uh, but there's also a, a 14th Amendment problem in terms of the lack of due process here. There, 
the, the law needs to specify in advance what conduct is prohibited so that an individual can avoid the cut of the law. This law does not do that adequately. And that, that vagueness is an additional reason why we argue uh, that, uh, that the court, and in this case, uh, this is the Eastern District of California that we have, where we have brought this lawsuit in, in Sacramento. We're asking them uh, to set this law aside and not allow it to go into effect on January 1. And there's another problem, and that's uh, overprotection and underprotection. One of the th whole problems with COVID is, is that the, the populations that are really subject to it and can die at the highest levels um, weren't in the early stages protected as much, the old and all that. And then some of the people who aren't that much affected, like the young, well, if you're a doctor who has a different risk tolerance than another doctor, how about whether you go and treat early symptoms of it? For certain older people, you want to send them to the hospital. It's, it's my, it is all my understanding, right? Well, and then for certain younger people, you don't. So how about a guy comes in at 58 and the guy says, ah, you're fine, but really he's in the other group. This sort of, this sort of, um, this sort of thing is, is, as I said, individual, but it's also treating the whole population of California the same. Well, and there's a, there's a particular concrete example, John, that is in the complaint and, and, uh, and the preliminary injunction. One of our doctors points out that early on in the pandemic, and I think everyone will remember this, intubation was the standard protocol. If you showed up at the hospital and you were having trouble breathing and you had COVID, then they put the, the you know, they did the intubation. That, that was the, uh, that was how they thought they needed to, to take care of folks. Well, uh, our client noticed pretty early on that uh, intubation wasn't working for people. I mean, there were a lot of deaths that were happening uh, after folks were intubated and, and and uh, our client fought back uh, against that trend and said, look, I'm not going to intubate my patients. I don't think this is the right way to go about this. And guess what? That turned out to be right. It turned out to be right that intubation was happening too frequently and wasn't the best strategy to get the, the best results uh, for the most people in terms of survivability. And so if this law had been in effect, then that doctor who was right could have lost his license as a result of refusing to intubate patients. So it, it's a really it's a really dangerous law. Now I will say, uh, Governor Newsom, in signing the law, uh, did something that amused me, John. He issued a signing statement. I don't think he called it that, uh, but he tried to say, "Look, this is only going to be used in these very narrow circumstances, and only with doctors that are." Uh, and, and I forget what the exact word is he used. Only doctors who are maliciously, I think, might be the word. Uh, you know, mistreating patients. Come on, really? If a doctor is maliciously mistreating a patient, that's a tort. Well, and there's, and there's so a you don't need a law to, to stop is, that. And also, the thing is, the law Another doesn't law. say that. How does he know? How does he know? That's he right. can put any signing statement. He's not going to be governor forever, and and he's not even the enforcement guy. I don't think. I think it's not the really. AG, yeah, right? it's the AG, sure. And so, we're suing. We're suing Attorney General Bonta as part of this, and the members of the California Medical Board. So you know, in addition to Governor Newsom, what, what are you going to do? Say, oh, Newsom said people like me would never be hurt by this. Yes, and and when they put in the Sixteenth uh, Amendment, they said it would only apply to uh, taxing millionaires on their income. Yes, you know? that's right. The top one percent <laughs> or something, right? Yeah. Well. I don't know about you, John, but I'm not in the top 1%, but it seems like the IRS is expecting uh, money from me every year. Uh, so, uh, so there's a real problem with this, with this law. As I say, uh, we, are, we are suing to have, it, to have it set aside. We think that there's strong First Amendment argument and a strong 14th Amendment uh, due process uh, argument here. 
because it does subject the plaintiffs to discipline and negative professional consequences, including loss of license for conveying non-consensus messages uh, to their patients. And for that reason, the law practically creates a severe chilling effect that can violate uh, the First Amendment. So uh, wish us luck. We'll keep you posted on what happens with AB 2098. As I say, it's already been passed in the law. We're going to try to keep it going. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark and I are very happy to be joined by our colleague, Kara Rollins, to talk about uh, another attempt by the uh, administrative state to grab more powers and more enforcement powers in violation of the Constitution. And Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so this matter involves Drizzly and the SEC. Tell us what happened. Well, it's Drizzly and the FTC. FTC, no. excuse me. <laughs> Though, I don't know, don't give the SEC any good ideas. <laughs> well, Drizzly has been sued by the SEC in a case I'm used to, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so Drizzly was accused of having lax security practices, which led... Can, can I take one step back? Drizzly is the liquor delivery company. Is I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. That's correct, okay. right? I can go on my app and I can get beer to my house. It's a pretty good deal in my uh, in my book. It's the 21st century, I tell you. Yeah. Um, and so they were accused of having lax status security in terms of access to information that the company had stored. The FTC makes a couple of accusations. One, they were collecting too much information. And two, that the information they were collecting wasn't being stored appropriately and therefore could have accesses. And and that is a common FTC. Uh, they've been doing a lot of these type of cases. That's not really the problem here. Um, well, except there's no statute that gives the no, FTC authority uh, to do unfair, it, John. It's unfair, Mark. It says that they can do, they can approach anything that's unfair mm, and it's okay. unfair to have a data breach. Well, but... they, they, they use both unfairness and misleading uh, practices in this one because they say- Deception as well. Deception as well <laughs> because they say- oh, you said you had secure practices. And John and I have gone through the ringer with the FTC on this exact point of, you know, everybody knows when you put stuff into the cloud, security doesn't mean 100%. And the FTC says, well, we believe it, it should be darn well close, and, which isn't the reality of how security actually operates in, in the internet ecosystem. And we're also aware of LabMD, where it was the same sort of claim. And uh, obviously the 11th Circuit disagreed with them. So, but- Let's put all that aside. Let's just take a look at the fact that uh, they want to have Drizzly do something to end its its uh, uh, persecution by the FTC, yeah. if you want to call it that. Uh, what is what's happening? Well, and so I actually think the FTC, in their own words, they have uh, on their business blog and the title of this post. I love it so much because it is just devoid of any sense of of, of self, and it's. Data security forecast, Drizzly with 100% of far-reaching order provisions, right? I mean, when we talk about the administrative state, we always talk about the ways they regulate and overreach. I mean, here they are saying, like, we know we're going yeah. way outside the guardrails. And we usually say they hide it. They creep in cat's feet so the courts don't notice it. But it's on their website. Yeah, right? no, at this point, they're just, you know, clapping themselves on the back. And I think 
Um, so the FTC does a lot of work uh, of its work and regulation, both through enforcement actions, but also they issue a ton of guidance documents, which I know you've talked about on the show before. And so they do have a guidance document that talks a lot about sort of preferred business security practices for data management. Um, and one of the violations that they allege is that, you know, you didn't do anything that's in our book. As we always say, well, again, as Mark pointed out, there's no comprehensive data security statute passed by Congress and told to the FTC, you get to enforce this. But the side effect too, is that these guidances, whatever information may be helpful to business, it cannot be the basis of an enforcement infraction. Um, and so that's something certainly at NCLA we talk about a lot, and that's pretty much the core of what's going on here. They're reaching outside their power in terms of what they're enforcing. But my favorite one is the remedy here. And the remedy isn't just against the company, it's against their CEO individually. And it effectively says if he has a business where he has a majority stake or goes and has some sort of senior position somewhere else, he then needs to personally ensure that the data security practices that the FTC likes are implemented at that new company. And the senior position, the, the language of it doesn't mean that he's in control of their data security. He could be in a senior position that has nothing to do with it. Well, and to that point, Commissioner Wilson actually issued a dissenting statement limited just to the CEO's individual liability portion moving forward. For that exact point is that, you know, CEOs have a lot of stuff come across their desk. They can't be personally responsible for every infraction that goes on in that company. And so to that extent, she thought that it shouldn't actually apply to this, this provision moving forward. Um, and, you know, I'm one all thing, in favor of the top guy not being responsible for everything. <laughs> that in the organization yeah. Well, and, and, and the point that Commissioner Wilson makes in her dissent, and I think it's well taken, is that this is a classic instance of the regulator telling the businesses how to operate. And businesses make thousands of decisions in any given day, and they have to make all kinds of weighted decisions about what's good for their internal processes, their consumer targets, their investors, and, and the government shouldn't really get a say in that. Um, it, it was sort of the way I read Wilson's dissent. I think she's correct in, in the way she phrases that. And um, you, you mentioned a First Amendment problem. Tell us about that. This is absolutely compelled speech. Right. It's not just that the the target company that's done something that's allegedly violative has to implement. If he goes someplace else, a company that has never been accused of doing anything wrong, that has never entered an agreement with the FTC, now has to write down and expend money on a compliance program that assumes that the government, one, has the ability to regulate this and two, does it in the way that the government wants it to. And that, to me, is a, a classic sort of control, a compelled speech problem. Prior restraint, even. Maybe. Prior restraint, and, yeah. And, and let's think about this. So we, we often talk about the benefits of a court over an administrative agency. If a court tried to do this, it would be struck down because he's trying to control someone who's not before him and has never had a chance to litigate the issue. And they might have completely different data security processes that have nothing to do with Drizzly's, nothing mm -hmm. at all. And that might not make sense if you tried to mesh them with whatever. And the, and the, the requirements are. that are in here um, are very specific. For example, it requires vulnerability testing every four months, months, penetration testing every 12 months. And then they have to say to the FTC, yeah, we did these things. I mean, these are very specific types of data security practices. So, so they have to report to the, this new company would have to report to the FTC that it had done these things, even though it wasn't a party to any sort of settlement agreement. Exactly. So uh, it's, it's, that's, that's it's not going to fly. Yeah, it's not going to fly. And it's again, the sort of thing, not only that a judge couldn't order it, but if 
if DOJ had gone into court with something like this, they get laughed out. I think even the FTC would get laughed out if it tried to have this done in, in court, but they can do it in their own agency because there's no sort of they oversight. Could, well, they control the judges. And I would also say that it would be one thing if they said wholly controlled by him, right? That they didn't mm -hmm. really believe that any corporation he was ever at was anything but 100% controlled. You're talking about like a sole proprietorship? A sole or proprietorship. Something? Yeah. I, then you could say, well, come on, don't you can't use the corporate form. Maybe you'd have that. But they just said senior level. If he's CFO. Yeah, senior level or majority stake. So if he's 50.001, that's enough to, to trigger this. I mean, I think it makes the guy unhirable outside of Drizzly. Unless so he's got to stay there for 10 years. Right. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't want him buying my stock either. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and John and I talk about this a lot. You know, it's a poison pill. It's a poison sorts. pill. And, and, I, and I wonder, and you tell me, Kara, it feels to me like it might be intended that way. Oh, like absolutely. Like they're, they're, they're trying to punish him personally. Well, no, I actually think it's because that the point that you said, Congress has not passed a comprehensive data security practices program, and they may or they may not. The FTC is looking for other ways to implement the things that it wants. And so if this follows him to another company, they've just doubled the number of companies that are in their purview that are doing this kind of work exactly as they want it to be done. And so, yes, it's a poison pill. Maybe he gets stuck at Drizzly for the next 10 years while this provision is in place. Alternatively, if he doesn't want to leave, then the FTC gets to say, oh, well, we now have another company that's complying as a result of, of this agreement. Because Drizzly doesn't get to stop complying if he leaves. That's, that's exactly <laughs> correct, because they're also liable as the company itself. And so what's the next step in this? What so, happens now? So the commission put this out. Um, they published it this week in the Federal Register. It's going to be open for public comment for 30 days. Um, so if you have any listeners out here thinking this is wild and this is not the, what the you know, companies or what the government should be doing with their time, uh, it's open for public comment. You can submit public comments. I think certainly NCLA is going to consider doing that. Um, but we're going to be raising the flag on the First Amendment issue because it's the one thing that's not getting talked about this right now. And um, I, I wonder if there are any major alcohol companies in our listening audience, John. <laughs> <laughs> in Colorado. Are you listening, Colorado? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have to say, the, now, who is, you know, have any of the commissioners, did the majority of, there's a dissent, did any of the others say why this is a good thing and why they want it? Or are we speculating? <laughs> I mean, the, the general thrust of what's going on, because there's also an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, the FTC's view that they can regulate everything on the internet. And they're going to try to do that in the next couple of months, year, whatever it may be. They just think that this is a net benefit. They think consumers are harmed when there's lax data security practices and that they can use their powers under the FTC Act um, to, to regulate. And that's sort of the net benefit that they see. Um, you know, I don't think they necessarily address concerns about, say, competitive harm or the fact that developing technologies need a little bit more room to grow and figure these things out. Or what we talked about before, businesses having the right to determine what security practices they they think are best as opposed to what the FTC thinks is best. Yeah. And um, it does seem that they are. You know, I, I will say this. I mean, that headline you pointed out to, and I'm in the studio, I'm pointing to it. But but when you say at the top of your at the top of your John's practicing for when we get a webcam. Yeah. Anyway. At the top of your post data security <laughs> forecast drizzly with 100 percent chance of far reaching order provision. I mean, they're certainly inviting it. They're saying, come at me. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, we talk about all the time here and I know we've talked about on the show is 
when you're dealing with the person that's regular, the entity that's regulating you, you don't get a lot of space, right? Drizzly is a wholly owned subsidiary of Uber, which is a publicly traded company. Um, there's other pressures to settle and come up with some sort of agreement. And, and I think that the, the commission knows that, right? They know where to put the pressure point is and you'll just sign anything. I think there's a great old uh, comedy bit and the option is cake or death. And when you're at a cake, what's the option? Or death. And that's sort of how the FTC seems to operate. A lot of other agencies operate this is, well, your option is or death. So have at it. Right. Well, um, I do think that uh, that comment should be put in by just about everyone. a lot of folks. So any final thoughts? Well, you know, one final thought on this is that Drizzly was subject to a um, settlement. I got 15 bucks that I then received to on Drizzly for wine as a result of a class action. So there are mechanisms to create security valves for the people who help them. Anyway, good. <laughs>